Blog Talk Radio. Are you going to talk to me? Lulu's going to co-host with y'all tonight. She's giving me the night off. I'm not. (laughs) Come here, Lulu. Oh, oh, okay. There we go. Hi. Hi, everyone. So, good evening. Hope uh, everybody in the land of Facebook and inside Vibe Radio Network land are doing well tonight. Hope you all had a good Mother's Day. Yes. No, we did. We had, all, we had fun. Yes. And, of course, we talked to our mothers. Yes. And we celebrated because I have her baby. And all the children have adopted while we Yes. It's my still Ready to talk. The keyboard. I am ready to talk. Oh, there's Glenn. And, oh, and hi, Doug. How are you? Oh, yeah, thanks for tuning in tonight. So this was an interesting episode to do some research on. Yeah, um, the, the original thought was just quantum transportation in general, and then I kept naming plane star beat. And I'm like, I've got enough printed artists that on planes and airports, so we're just going to do that. It is happening. It is. And, uh, oh, hey, Alice, Alice, happy 25th anniversary of the movie Twister. I didn't know that. I did not either. Come on, I feel old. Yeah. Thanks, Alice. <laughs> what did you look it up? Cow. Cow. Another cow. No, I think that was a cow. <laughs> Love the movie. Oh. Too much. It's been a while. It has. Yeah. That was the year the disaster movie, so I think Volcano came out yeah. pretty much around there. Dante Peak came out. Not helping is that we're currently playing video games that date back to the late 90s. Yeah, we decided to take a trip down Fantasy Final Fantasy. Yeah, Final Fantasy VII, Final Fantasy VIII. Stuff that came out when we were in high school and college. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. So. But yeah, so trip down memory lane of late. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, we, we, we wound up coming up with all this stuff for uh, airplanes and airports and voila. And so even a conspiracy theory because it was yes. too much not to include. Yes, there is one very, very good conspiracy theory that even though there's a smidge of haunting at the location, it's mostly conspiracy theory, and it's just too much fun to leave alone. Yes, so, I couldn't. No, <laughs> no. Uh, but, yeah, hope everybody's doing good. And, as always, if anybody has questions, comments, whatnot, go ahead, drop us a note in the comments section. We are, we'd love to chat with you all. Yeah. So, as far as anything else going around here with uh, us? Since um, the last time we were here, we had our first haunted Capitol Hill tour in over a year. Yes, and it actually has been probably a year and a quarter since I gave that to her and I gave the first one and I gotta say I rocked it. She did rock it. I just needed to review the dates and the numbers and it was it's still in here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. But yeah, no that was a, that was fun. We had a nice uh, nice little group of six people join us. Yep. Out of shape, I will say that. Yeah. <laughs> but once I walk out a few more times it'll be good. Quarantine. Yeah, quarantine. Time to get out. Yes. Time to travel. Yes. Time to travel. Time to travel. And no places that are not in your car. So, um, let's talk about uh, lots of fun haunted stuff tonight. We've done hotels, we've done ghost ships, we've done highways. And now we're talking to the sky, and I forgot to turn off my phone. Now, setting, setting aside UFOs, we're not going to touch UFOs tonight. UFOs, we'll, be, we'll check them out on another occasion. Now, there's paranormal, uh, paranormal tales about air travel can be hard to come by. 
we came in by enough to certainly string together this episode, but um, oftentimes uh, most ghost stories are kind of backed up by some form of credible eyewitness or the results of a paranormal investigation. And while some of this evidence does exist, as we will discuss tonight, we are wrapping airports into the episode to kind of help round things out a little because bit. you can't take a flight without going to the airport. Exactly. And people are going to hop. Yep. <laughs> so the next time you head to an airport, this resulting, uh, resulting set of tales might just give you some thoughts uh, to those who have uh, flown the skies before you and make you wonder if that empty middle seat, which so many people treasure, is truly empty after all. Sensitive. No, 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 no. All right, so let's start with, of course, one of the favorite things people like to do in the winter is to head to Florida, especially if you're from New York, like Chris and I Yes. So snowbirds, as they are lovingly called. Lovingly, yeah, affectionately called. So flights from the Arctic North to the tropical south are very popular in the winter months, and this has been true for quite some time. Uh, back on December 29, 1972, Eastern Flight 401 from New York to Miami took off from JFK Airport at uh, 9. Shame on me. There were 176 people aboard the state-of-the-art Lockheed L-1011, which was nicknamed the Whisper Liner for its relative quiet compared to that of other airplanes of the era. At 11.30 p.m., the captain welcomed everyone to, the, to Miami as the plane descended towards Miami International Airport. The flight had been routine until the approach into Miami, when the crew noticed that the landing gear indicator had not illuminated. After cycling the gear and failing to correct the problem, the crew elected to hold while trying to confirm that the issue was simply the indicator light itself. Second officer, Don Greppo, went into the avionics bay beneath the flight deck to check whether the gear was down through a small viewing telescope, while Captain Bob Locke put the L-1011 on autopilot. But during attempts to remove the indicator light bulbs, it is thought the uh, control column was nudged, altering the autopilot command and putting the aircraft into a gradual descent that was not noticed by the crew. At 11.42, Flight 401 smashed into the Everglades at 225 miles an hour. The aircraft left a shallow impact crater in blacked-out swamplands just over 18 miles from the end of Miami's runway 9. 99 passengers and crew died in the initial crash, including the captain, and two others died later, including the second officer. Somehow, amidst the carnage, 75 people survived. At the time, it was the highest death toll of any single plane crash in the continental United States. The shattering event wasn't the end of the line for the Lockheed L-1011, though. Many parts of the ruined plane, especially those in the galley, were deemed reusable and were therefore salvaged and installed on other planes in Eastern's fleet. As you might imagine, this is where the stories of the paranormal commence. The idea that departed souls might be able to retain some relationship with inanimate objects, like salvaged air- airplane parts, is known as psychometry. In early 1973, just a matter of months after the Flight 401 tragedy, one of the planes that had received salvaged parts was flying from New York, Newark to Miami when the senior flight attendant called the captain away from the flight deck. The attendant was concerned about another Eastern Airlines pilot who was in the first-class section. The man dressed in full captain's uniform was staring straight ahead as if in a daze and wasn't responding to any questions from the attendant. 
He wasn't on the flight manifest and appeared to be flying home off the clock, a practice known as deadheaded. When the captain approached the passenger, he exclaimed, My God, it's Bob Loft. It would have been a welcome meeting between old colleagues had Bob Loft not perished several months earlier. Over the next year and a half, numerous Eastern employees reported seeing the ghosts of Repo and Loft on other Eastern flights. A flight attendant reported seeing the face of Don Repo in an oven door. She grabs two other members of the crew to come take a look, just in time to hear the specter say, watch out for fire in this plane. Sure enough, the engine failed on the return flight and was shut down just before catching fire. An attendant on another New York-Miami flight opened an overhead bin to see Bob Loft's face staring back at her. On another flight, an entire Eastern cockpit crew saw Repo setting amongst them. They claimed that the dead man warned them about the faulty electrical circuit, which was found and repaired. Even an Eastern Airlines vice president had a pleasant conversation with a man in a captain's uniform shortly, before, uh, shortly after boarding a flight at JFK. He realized halfway through that he recognized the man as deceased Captain Bob Loft. Stories of these ghostly encounters continued to circulate, almost always sharing a common thread. These friendly phantoms were trying to protect the planes and those aboard. The sightings weren't limited to just crew either. There were several reports of passengers seeing the same ghosts as well. An account of the sightings was printed in a 1974 issue of the Flight Safety Foundation newsletter, a trade publication not known for indulging in the supernatural. Eastern Airlines officially dismissed those stories with CEO Frank Foreman a former Apollo astronaut, going so far as to call the tale some garbage. It seems that no matter the friendly and helpful nature of the spirit, talk of the paranormal was not at all welcomed by Eastern Airlines management. According to investigative reporter John G. Fuller's 1976 book, The Ghosts of Flight 401, Eastern employees who reported sightings to the supervisors were typically referred to, were typically referred to the company shrink. Eventually, it escalated to the point that employees were warned that they would be fired if caught disseminating the ghostly stories. Meanwhile, evidence of the paranormal tales started to disappear. Logbooks from nearly all the flights on which the sightings were reported went missing, along with their notes from the flight crews about the spirited encounters. The salvaged parts were also quietly removed from the recipient aircraft as well. It seems that no matter how much they might deny it, Eastern Airlines was determined to nip any further paranormal tales in the bud. The story of Flight 401 has been told many times in popular culture. John G. Fuller published his book, as we previously mentioned, uh, and this publication so infuriated the management at Eastern that they considered suing Fuller. While Eastern ultimately did not sue, Lost's widow and children did. Their suit was ultimately dismissed. The 1979 album Three Hearts by Bob Welsh, formerly a member of Fleetwood Mac, features the song The Ghost of Flight 401. And aside from other books about the crash, there was a 1978 made-for-TV movie called Crash, starring Ernest Borgnine as a second, second officer based on Repo and a young Kim Basinger as one of the surviving flight attendants. The story also continues to be remembered decades later as it continues to pop up on other shows produced by the Discovery Channel and Smithsonian Television, amongst others. So, that is a very, very interesting one. That was 
was quite a pile, yeah. of, quite a pile of information to dig through for that one. It was. It was a lot of information and a lot of personal accounts. Um, and I love the, the airline's response to it. They want nothing to do with it, but they figured out they couldn't have nothing to do with it unless they removed the park. Yeah, has any plane been haunted by former plane workers or those that took care of the passengers that died or were or were had an attachment to the plane? Oh yeah, um, that's Bob and yeah. um, Bob and um, Don. Don. Yeah, they they both haunted um, those uh, yeah, those planes. Although I'm not sure if I didn't come across we didn't come across any stories where somebody died just simply on the aircraft and continued to haunt that particular aircraft no, thereafter. I did not find any stories of that. There was always some type of tragedy involved with the stories and um, the hauntings take place either at the site of the location or as with this case, parts were reused, and so they haunted with the parts. Um, I love the fact that they were always warning about things going wrong and they were trying to protect the planes the parts were in. All right, so we're going to hop over to Chicago, Illinois, one of the other most busy airports uh, in the U.S. I hate this airport with a passion. Because I always end up having to run through from one end to the other, which is why I just have to so I would do whatever I have to do to avoid it including paying hundreds of dollars. <laughs> so this is uh, the flight 191. From the East Coast to the Upper Midwest, May 25th of 1979, it was a beautiful Memorial Day weekend in Chicago. The skies were sunny and gave no indication of a horror that was about to descend. A number of Chicago literary figures down to Los Angeles in the annual American Booksellers Association Conference, mixed with the throngs of people who were waiting to board. Flight 191 at O'Hare Airport. Just before 3 p.m., the passengers boarded the top of the line McDonnell Douglas DC-10. This particular plane had more than 20,000 trouble-free hours since it left the assembly line, and its experienced flight crew, including Captain Walter Luck, had been flying DC-10 since their introduction eight years earlier. Joining Captain Luck on the flight deck was First Officer James Billard and Flight Engineer Alfred Ildrich. We had nearly 25,000 flight hours between the two. At 2.59 p.m., the plane was cleared to begin its tack down to the runway, and then at 3.02, the flight 191 started down the runway. All went smoothly until the aircraft reached a point about 6,000 feet down the runway. The tower controller saw parts of the port engine pylon falling away from the aircraft and a white vapor coming from that area. A moment later, the plane pitched back and lifted off. As it did so, the entire engine and pylon tore loose from their mounting, flipped up and over the wing, and crashed down onto the runway. For your reference, in aviation terms, a pylon is an intermediate part that connects the engine to the airframe. Upon witnessing this catastrophic failure, the tower controller tried to raise the plane on the radio. America 191, do you want to come back? So what runway do you want? There was no response from the aircraft, but it proceeded to climb normally, only dipping left wing for a moment. It quickly stabilized, and the plane continued its descent. About 10 seconds later, a height of about 300 feet, the aircraft began to bank to the left, first slightly, then sharply. The nose of the plane dipped, and as the aircraft began to lose height, the bank to the left increased until the wings were past vertical, and the plane plummeted to the ground. The left wing tip hit the ground first, and the sound of carrying metal was followed by a massive explosion. 
The rushing fireball swept across the field, traveling about a half a mile northwest of O'Hare, and roared into an abandoned hangar on the site of the old Ravenswood Airport just east of the Mobile Park. The burning plane crossed mostly open ground, narrowly missing some of the Mobile Park homes and a few storage tanks in the crowded I-90 expressway. Two people on the ground were killed and several mobile homes were damaged. All 279 people on the plane, the crew, the passengers, and soldiers. The disaster stunned the entire country, leading to scores of questions about the BC-10 aircraft and how the loss of one of us, only one engine had sealed the fate of the flight. The findings of a long and grueling investigation by the NTSC were released about seven months later on December 21st of 1979. It attributed the cause of the crash to an engine pylon that had been damaged at an American Airlines maintenance facility in March of, 1770, or excuse me, of 79. The engine had needed some routine maintenance and to save time and cost, American Airlines, without the approval of McDonnell Douglas, had <clears throat> instructed their mechanics to remove the engine and pylon as a single unit. A large forklift was used to support the engine while it was being detached from the wing. This procedure was extremely difficult to execute successfully because the engine assembly had to be held perfectly straight while it was being removed. This was almost impossible to do without causing a crack. After the accident, cracks were found in the bulkheads of many other DC cars. The fracture on the plane used to flight 191 went unnoticed for weeks, getting worse and worse with each flight. During flight 191's takeoff, enough force was generated to finally cause that pylon to fail. At one point of rotation, the engine detached and was flipped over the top of the wing, continually lengthening the cracks that had caused the flight to end disaster. A number of ghost stories started to follow in the wake of the crash. Police in the neighboring facilities of the plains began to receive baffling calls in the months following the crash. Motorists in the area began reporting odd sightings, including an odd, bobbing white light in the field where the aircraft had gone down. The first thoughts were that the lights must have been flashlights carried by a bluish souvenir hunter. But when officers responded to the scene, they would only find a silent and deserted field. Of the numerous times the police responded to the site, oftentimes mere moments after being called, no living soul was ever found in the field. More unnerving the lights, though, were the accounts that came from the residents of that nearby mobile home park. Many of these reports came within hours of the crash, when residents claimed to hear knocking and rapping sounds at their doors and windows. Those who investigated the sounds, including a number of retired and off-duty police officers and firefighters, opened their doors to find no one there. Oh, we have a request for a kitten. Sleeping. Oh, she's pretending to sleep. Pretending to sleep. <laughs> she's pretending to sleep. Oh, big stretch. Here's <laughs> a kitty cat. Here's a kitty cat. Lulu stopped off. Oh, she's right there. She's right there. She's right there. She's right there. She's and on some occasion, actual figures were confronted. According to some reports, a few residents opened the doors to find a worried figure who stated he had to get his luggage, or he had to make a connection, standing on their porch. The figure then turned and vanished into darkness. 
Other locals went out walking their dogs along Higgins Road and reported encountering an agitated young man saying that he needs to make an emergency phone call. One of these locals explained his encounter in detail. It was a chilly night and the young man approached with what looked to be steam emanating from his clothing. It certainly seemed unusual at first, but the resident reasoned that maybe the man had been running and the steam was simply sweat cooling in the night air. When asked about a phone, the resident turned to point to a payphone that was just down the street. But when he turned back, the young man had vanished. All that was left behind was a lingering mist and a reeking scent of step fuel. The man and the dog had heard stories from other local residents about the moans and the weird cries emanating from the 79 crash site. But he never believed them until now. Now he was convinced he had just encountered one of the restless passengers from that doomed flight for himself. Given the repeated appearances of this entity, and has actually been giving the name, the steam name. People are not the only ones who sense something off. The dogs in the trailer park and the canines in the nearby canine training facility would get agitated and bark endlessly at the empty field where the plane has gone down. No reason to be found for the dogs and suddenly erratic behavior. The tragedy and the strange events that followed caused many of the residents to move away. But when new arrivals took their place, they too began to report a weird happening. Back inside the O'Hare International Airport, at least one of the 179 passengers remained. Forever retracing his final actions before boarding the Doom DC-10. In the years after the tragedy, at the payphone near the terminal lounge, passengers at the O'Hare have watched a somber male figure, wrapped up in last-minute conversation, turn expectantly towards the ultimate faded gate, take a few determined steps, and then vanish. Everybody happy with those pretty? Yes. Yep. You know, a little mad at me today. Uh, well, well, both of us, I guess. She got she got size for a harness. I'm the one that did that. Did not go over well. She got out of it. Yeah. Which is a little concerning, but at least good to know. Yeah. And then I brushed her. Most cats like being brushed. She hates it. Hates it with a passion. Um, but she needed it. Her fur was getting a little, like, eh, kind of. I mean, she's starting her winter coat, so yeah. she needed it. Yeah. So, she's agitated with us. Yeah, it's a little agitated. But uh, she's sharing her rhythm with us. That's a improvement. Yep, it is. Step in the right direction. So do we have any kind of questions? Um, not, uh, not any that I haven't answered. Okay. Um, so Glenn asked if there were any stories about uh, cursed planes, to which I replied, nothing particularly cursed, mm-hmm. certainly haunted, mm-hmm. more ghostly planes and stuff like that, but uh, I think that a quote-unquote cursed plane probably wouldn't belong to this guy anyway. Yeah. Probably wouldn't end well. Yeah. So. That's yeah. why I know, but I can keep my eyes open because I'm still researching other haunted transportation. Yeah. I think that was that was the main one. Yeah. Sure. Oh, uh, yes. Hopping across the pond, uh, as you dash through the busy air, as you dash through a busy international airport, you'd be forgiven for not giving the history of the place a second thought. After all, making a uh, connecting domestic flight can be daunting enough, let alone when you throw in the complications that can come with international travel. Maybe that's why one of the busiest international airports in the world doesn't see too many headlines aside from passenger traffic fix numbers. Any haunted, 
uh, Richmond International? Not that I am aware of, but we can check with Paul. We can, and it would make sense if there was because it's on a, it's on a Civil War battlefield. It is. Yeah, it is on a battlefield. So we know that there's plenty of hauntings out that general direction, but I haven't heard about any hauntings specifically at Richmond International. Yeah. Hmm. Check with Paul. Yes. So we need to talk to him anyway. Yes. <laughs> and Atlanta Hartsfield. Um, yeah, we're waiting. Are we? No, I don't think Atlanta did not 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 too much, but I think there was stuff around Atlanta, so we will probably get back to that on another occasion. Yeah. So let's see. Now, of course, uh, such a busy and esteemed establishment is going to have some stories to share beneath the mountains of statistics. So we're going to push the numbers aside to have a look at the hauntings of London Heathrow. A little background first. London Heathrow Airport has a very long history, at least in respect to, uh, at least in respect to air travel. Uh, in 1929, the Great West Aerodrome was built on land about 14 miles outside of London, near the little hamlet of Heathrow. It was situated amongst farms and orchards and didn't see much major development until 1944. At that time, the world was still in the midst of World War II, and the British government looked to Heathrow to handle heavy military air travel to the Far East. But the war ended before this development could be completed. That's not to say that the British walked away from the airfields. Rather, they continued to build it out to make the foundation for the big and busy civil airports that we know today. As with many places with long and interesting histories, stories of the paranormal inevitably seem to surface. Admittedly, Heathrow's most famous ghost hasn't been seen in a long while, but it's still a great tale all the same. In March of 1948, a flight coming in to land at Heathrow from Brussels ran into difficulties due to thick fog, and the plane crashed uh, crash-landed on runway 28 right, killing all three crew members and 17 of the 22 passengers. As Heathrow employees and emergency services worked to help the injured and find the dead and dying, a man wearing a hat calmly walks through the fog towards them. He was dressed in civilian clothes and obviously wasn't part of the rescue team. The man asked if the team had found his briefcase. And as the rescue team were staring at him, he disappeared into the fog, never to be seen again. According to reports, the emergency workers <laughs> later reported finding the same gentleman's body in the wreckage. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I did. I just went into work today. <laughs> and I shared with my neighbors. <laughs> uh, so, uh, since that terrible night in 1948, there have been many reports of sightings of a man wearing a hat being seen along the runway. During recent years, he's been spotted less and less, but in 1970, it's reported he came back for one final hurrah, and something happened which Heathrow's staff have never been able to explain. All started when the radar office reported picking up a visual of a person trespassing on the runway, which obviously isn't ideal. The airport police were dispatched to apprehend the intruder, and they were joined by the airport fire department just in case anything went amiss. The radar office guided the team to the spot where the man was and waited for him to be removed. However, the police reported back that they weren't able to see anyone, and the runway was clear. 
the radar office testily replied that they must be able to see him as they were arriving at the scene they had driven right next to the person. Rattled, they continued to search for the individual guided by the radar office who were absolutely insistent that the intruder was still visible. Search as they might, the officers on the runway could not find whoever it was, and eventually both parties gave up. Could it have been the diligent office worker desperately trying to find his briefcase? Quite possibly. Now, this one is uh, coming to the interior of the airport. Mm -hmm. Now, when traveling for work or leisure, many people can't help but to imagine what luxuries might await them at their destination. If you're a savvy flyer, though, and accustomed to some extended uh, layovers, you might be aware of the fact that you don't need to wait until you're on the beach with your tropical drink to get a taste of the highlights. Airports are increasingly offering more luxury shopping, fine dining, uh, and, of course, those seemingly exclusive lounges. And London Heathrow is no exception, of course. Sometimes these amenities can be so nice that maybe you don't want to leave, particularly if your destination is actually the inside of a corporate office, uh, corporate conference room, instead of the aforementioned tropical beach. This seems to be the case with at least one individual in one of the VIP lounges at London Metro. Visitors to the lounge are generally looking for little more than a place to get away from the hustle and bustle while they await their next flight. Maybe they will take a nap, partake in some of the complimentary food and drink, take a quick shower, or just enjoy the relative, uh, relatively comfy furniture. One thing they are almost certainly not looking for is an encounter with a resident spirit. Many people have reported seeing a spectral figure in a gray suit looking to partake in some of the amenities himself. In a comical and somewhat unsettling twist, though, the specter doesn't always appear in his entirety. Rather, sometimes people have only seen a gray pair of trousers meandering through the lounge. Well, I have to wonder how he would enjoy the amenities without a torso. At least he does keep his pants on. Low-hanging fruit. Should I let you read the front part so I can catch up with comments? Okay. So there, is a, there was a question of are there any haunted aircraft carriers? There are. Oh, yes. Definitely. Yep. Um, we've talked about a few of them on our haunted ships um, <laughs> before, but there's a lot more out there. And we're going to probably do another haunted ship once I do some more. Um, I can't remember what Glenn's question was, but I'll let you answer it. Okay. All right. So Dick Turpin returns for a final holdup at London Heathrow. Uh, now, this one is a name you might find familiar. Of course, this Kirk, this Turkin is the chocolate has coated the tongue. That was a mistake. Dick Turpin is a rather infamous individual, and you could be forgiven if you don't know who he is since he's been dead for nearly 300 years. But if you do remember him, it might not be with any fondness. In his short life, he was not a popular man. He was violent, scruple-free criminal, and he rode up and down England holding up stagecoaches and wrestling cattle. However, his luck did not last forever. In 1739, he was arrested while staying at an inn, and he met a sticky end when he, didn't, uh, when he was sentenced to death by hanging. While many a story would end here at the end of the rope, that was not the case with Dick Turpin. Turpin's spirit still makes his way across England, although not as successfully robbing people and stealing cattle as he once did. He can still be a bit unsettling to encounter. 
and encountering an MUA in the Air Force. To clarify, reports of turbine spirit at Heathrow can be traced back to a time before the airport was even constructed. Descriptions of his alleged sightings often include a black stallion, while many report seeing turbines standing in the main terminal wearing period clothing, including a tri-cornered hat, appearing and disappearing as they walk through the terminal. Staff have also reported hearing a man barking or howling in the terminal, but when they turn around to see what's causing the noise, nobody's there. While Dick isn't the bandit that he once was, he still has a problem for making the people around Heathrow uncomfortable when he walks. Sorry, I'm still typing. Okay. Do you want a strawberry? Yes, I love a strawberry. Cheese everybody out here. And yes, I made these because I love strawberry picking this weekend. And I have three baskets. I have a lot of chocolate in my <laughs> in my pantry. Oh, you just dropped a piece somewhere. I don't know where. I have no idea. No, the great. The girls will have it later. Hopefully it's not chocolate. <laughs> Probably is. Probably. <laughs> All right, so now we're going to come back to Denver Airport. We mentioned one that is more conspiracy theory than just theory, and this is Denver Airport. Um, Chris and I used to travel out of this one a lot while my uh, sister and my parents lived in uh, just north of Denver, so we're quite familiar with this airport. In fact, his first meeting of my mother was literally meeting my mother at the airport while he was leaving and she was coming back in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Fond memories. Yeah, flew in and then the next day we promptly got three feet of snow. Yes. And it tore a hole in the airport. It did. <laughs> tore a, root in the hole, a hole in the roof of the airport. That was interesting. We went hiking up in Estes instead. We were walking out in the National Park. Yeah. It was fun week. Yeah. All right. Um, so Denver International Airport is an architectural marvel. The distinctive tent-like terminal has only graced the plains of east of downtown Denver since 90, 1995, making it one of the newest airports in the United States. Maybe it's facilities newness that has helped lead to some of the many conspiracies that we discovered and the tales that linger about the place. In the true, there's always a grain of truth fashion. Many of these conspiracy theories are loosely supported by various aspects of the airport and from the art that graces the facility and the vast number of outbuildings to the many disabused airplane hangars, <clears throat> excuse me, disused airplane hangars, so there's a plenty about this airport that raises some eyebrows. So when they were building, uh, originally it was slated to be finished in October of 1993. Design changes, contract disputes, a pile of other setbacks pushed the airport opening to February of 1995. Furthermore, the final budget for the airport was an astounding $3 billion. That's with a B. More than it was originally expected to be. Furthermore, one could argue that the airport was completely unnecessary to begin with. Denver already had a well-functioning airport near the community of Stapleton. So was it just politics wanting their own names associated with something shiny and expensive, or was there something else going on behind the scenes that drove this project forward? These questions and head-scratching facts lead to many of these conspiracies that there's like to surmise that there are things going on at this airport, and others just don't want to know about it. 
they like the airport. Because of the design changes, the contract disputes, and the vast number of workers of which n almost none worked on the project from beginning all the way to the end, it's thought that nobody really knows the true scope of this project. Likely because the people behind the design wanted it that way. There is known to be as many six and many as six underground levels below the ground floor of the Denver International Airport, and possibly more that are not even publicly known about. Beyond that, there are theories that tunnels exist from Colorado Springs Air Force Base to Denver International Airport, that is 80 miles, and from the Air Force Base to the Cheyenne Mountain Military Complex, another 10 plus miles. As outlandish as some of these theories may seem, $3 billion would buy an awful lot of tunneling equipment. Now, the artwork that's on display. For all the public projects of the city of Denver, 1% of the budget for each project has to be allocated for public artwork to be put on display there. Because of this, there's an awful lot of artwork in DIA. <clears throat> Considering, again, $3 billion, that's a lot of 1%. Now, perhaps it's not coincidence that some of the artwork plays right into the hands of the conspiracy theories. I'm blocking the way. <laughs> the most controversial pieces uh, of the artwork are a massive pair of murals by local artist Leo Tanag. The pieces, titled World Dream of Peace and In Peace and Harmony with Nature, play into the hands of those who favor the New World Order order theory. While we won't dive into the depths of the New World Order, let's just say that many are reading these murals as harbingers of famine, genocide, and despair, or despair rather than the uplifting messages that he wished to send. Why would they do that? Because in their mind, Denver International Airport is not only an airport, but also a doomsday shelter for those selected to repopulate the post-apocalyptic wasteland. Aside from the would-be doomsday murals, we couldn't talk about Denver International's artwork without mentioning Bolsifer. Less conspiracy theory, more controversy, Bolsifer is the affectionate name given to the more officially named Blue Mustang sculpture that has stood at the entrance of the airport since 2008. Standing 32 feet tall, this impressive and imposing sculpture features a stallion rearing back on its hind legs with eyes that glow a brilliant red at night. Depending on your taste in artwork, you might love it or hate it. But at least you can have a chance to enjoy it in all its grandeur, unlike the creator, who has Jimenez. Jimenez was renowned for his striking fiberglass sculptures that were generally southwestern and Hispanic themes. Unfortunately, Jimenez was killed in an accident in his studio while working on the Blue Mustang. A massive section of the fiberglass board fell on him, severing an artery in his leg. The thing is, some things be seen, especially. Again, that. Now, the dedication capstone. Conspiracy fuel goes beyond the artwork with this capstone. In the airport's great hall, there's a plaque that is dedicated to the airport and those who helped it become into reality. You might expect the Denver city of Denver and the state of Colorado would have been prominently named at the top of the dedication, but the first name on the stone plaque is an organization called the New World Airport Commission. This might not seem odd to the casual observer, but you don't have to dig too deep to find that no such organization exists. It never existed. The capstone of the airport names an organization that sounds eerily like the previously mentioned New World. <clears throat> and in our mind's eye, we can clearly envision the conspiracy theorists ripping out their hair and foaming at the mouth over them. 
I have to admit, I have no idea what the deal is with the New World Airport Commission. And yes, the website for Denver International acknowledges this head scratching history. And if that's not enough, the vacation flag also serves as a cap to a time capsule that is set to be open in 2094. What does this contain? Nobody knows. The tunnels in the underground buildings. There are tunnels and the extensive subterranean structure that lie below the airport. Often known structures that are there are five large buildings that were developed but abandoned for some reason. Instead of demolishing these supposedly unnecessary structures, they continue to build the airport right on top of them. As you might imagine, the theories of what might be taking place in these supposedly abandoned spaces are endless. The tunnels are also well-known structures that crisscross the Denver International property. Unlike the abandoned underground structures, the tunnels do see extensive use. Although they are most well-known for uh, the public tram that runs between the Concourse A and the Japanese Terminal Building, and this tunnel does provide an eerie example of the reported paranormal activity. The story goes that unnerving American Native can be heard Native American chanting, excuse me, can be heard echoing through this tunnel. While employees assert that the music being played on a loop as part of the Earth program, others say that the music may not be supernatural. As it's being played to placate the angry spirits that actually live in the underground sections of the airport. What angry spirits? Well, it was actually built on top of a sacred Native American land. And uh, this angered the spirits that were left behind. And the claim supposedly has been refuted about this. The airport staff siding of the ground was surveyed by archaeologists prior to being built. And that, uh, of course, Native Americans actually also uh, blessed the area. Um, but at the same time, they've been seeing apparitions of a Native American warrior in the tunnel holding the hatchet as it glares at a passing tram car. Uh, there were also, at the very beginning and opening of the airport, issues with the luggage disappearing in the tunnels after it's been placed on the movers leading to the baggage claim. While missing luggage may not be anything new when it comes to air travel, the escalating activity in the tunnels was enough to spark some action. In 1995, Native American spiritual leaders performed a ceremony to lay any remaining spirits to rest, despite the claims that the land had been thoroughly surveyed and blessed ahead of time. No matter for the source of the haunting activities, the ceremony seemed to make the worst of the activities subside. Other thoughts of what happens at this airport? There may be uh, many, many other theories, but some think it might be the host of Area 52. Aptly named for the real United States government secret base, Area 51. While theories about Area 51 are ubiquitous about aliens, down UFOs, and extraterrestrial life being there, uh, many people believe that Denver International Airport may uh, actually have the unknown government secret stored deep beneath it. There's a somewhat more practical side. Some people surmise that Denver International will be the United States military headquarters if war breaks out on North American soil for other um, uh, similar reasons. There's enough room for planes to be stored, barracks underneath, and infrastructure for the operations as needed. Kind of makes sense. I mean, they always have secret bases and stuff somewhere. And it's relatively close to. Yeah. Um, yeah, the military base. Yeah. I mentioned before. Yeah. Yeah. Cheyenne. Cheyenne, yes. Yeah. So. Yeah, it wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me in the least. Mm -mm. Nothing important, but wouldn't yeah. surprise me. It was right on the heels of uh, 
the Cold War officially coming to an end. Yeah. So there's that. Now, uh, the, the question that you put, Mr. Earlier, um, Glenn asked if um, the uh, the old Air Force One that Kennedy used. Yeah. Are there any stories around that? I have heard that there might be. I need to look into it. Um, I actually stayed away from Air Force One this time. Yeah, I was looking for more domestic. Yeah, and we've also we've noticed that. Um, well, that, I don't want to rag on. If we use the word president, Facebook likes to block our reach. Yeah, or diminish it at least. Not necessarily block it out, right? But um, yeah, anything um, anything uh, that remotely touches on um, politics mm-hmm. gets. It's diminished. It's downplayed. Um, but I do have an entire presidential haunting book that we based a lot of our uh, previous show on, and I have not even scratched the surface of that. I've got maybe an eighth of the way into it, so I'll dig further and see if they have anything in there on Air Force One. Yeah. You could always, yeah, follow up on that, maybe actually just make a, a general post of it, something something a little separate, but we can put, put it on our Facebook page. Yeah, we could also tap our um Fellow professionals in YouTube to see if they know that. Yep. So. so. Yeah, we definitely have our connections that we can reach yep. out to you and whatnot. Fun thing about the internet over the past year, we made a lot of connections. Love the internet. Yeah. Mostly, yeah. usually. So another one. Yes. To fly into, uh, I I just realized I've flown <laughs> into every single <laughs> airport we've mentioned so far. Alex, no, no one else. Are you serious? Did anyone else's video skip ahead when Beth mentioned Area 51? They're watching. They, <laughs> they are watching. <laughs> Big Brother is here. Oh. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I. It may be a joke, but I wouldn't be surprised either. This is where satire and reality come together. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I am so serious. Great. We noted. And, uh, oh. Whitney says, yeah. Okay. All We're right. watching. Yeah. That's why this is I, Well, we won't mention that anymore. As a matter of fact, we're going to go ahead. We're going to get away from the controversial stuff. Alien objection. Alien objection. We're still going to be taken away tonight. Oh. Drink, drink more. Mess with our test results. Cheers, everybody. Oh, Probably. Who doesn't? <laughs> anyway, time for a tropical break. We are going to go ahead. We are going to head back to a nice, beautiful tropical location, one that we have touched on extensively before. We did a whole episode about this particular uh, state, at least. Yes. Which uh, is actually a set of islands. Yeah. So you might know where we're going. Yeah, uh, you probably do by now. Daniel K. Uh, Inoue. In no way. Yep, I think I got that right. International Airport, also known as Honolulu International Airport, is the principal aviation gateway to the city of Honolulu in Hawaii. The airport is named after U.S. Senator and Medal of Honor recipient Daniel K. Inouye, who represented Hawaii from 1963 until his death in 2012. Almost 50 years. Mm-hmm. He was, yeah, spent a good bit of time there. Uh, the airport is located just three miles northwest of Honolulu's central business district and covers a total of 4,220 acres, meaning it actually takes up more than 1% of 
of Oahu's total land area. That's pretty substantial. Uh, now, seeing how Hawaii is kind of hard to reach, the airport does see a lot of traffic, and there is at least one person there of the spectral variety. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Local legend says the Honolulu Airport is haunted by the lady in waiting, who stands at the gate at night peering out at the runway. She is a blonde woman in a white dress and sometimes appears in secure areas, areas where most people don't have clearance to go. Stories say she fell in love with a man who promised he would marry her, only to take off on an international flight and then never return. She was heartbroken and committed suicide and still waits for him to return. She also appears in areas where a higher security clearance is required. Aside from the lady-in-waiting, Honolulu Airport has some other hauntings as well. The Wiki Wiki Shuttle, which is a translates to quick, quick shuttle, uh, carries people from terminal to terminal around the airport, but late at night it often seems to pick up an extra guest. People have reportedly seen a spirit lingering in the back of the shuttle late at night. If you, uh, <clears throat> if you caught our episode last year about haunted Hawaii, you might remember hearing about the island's choking ghosts. There seems to be one at the airports that causes people to have the sensation of someone sitting on their chest. If humorous poltergeist activity is more your speed, there are also reports of toilets flushing themselves for no reason, toilet paper rolls that unravel on their own, and the toilet seats that abruptly slam down. Just because. Toilet humor. Yeah. Never gets old. Or the, the five-year-old and all of us. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're still here. We're still here, I promise. For now. For now. Oh, God. <laughs> maybe, maybe we, I don't know, when, if, should we do an, a UFO episode at some point? Beam me up, Scotty. Oh. Considering the number of UFO sightings that have come out in the pandemic, probably so. Oh, boy. I'm lost. <laughs> I love that there's an emoji for UFOs beaming people up now. That is fantastic, Donnie. Thank you. I did not know that existed until now. <laughs> and um, Glenn, no worries about the Air Force One question. That was a, it's a good question, actually. So, all good. All right. <laughs> nice knowing y'all. <laughs> all right. So while he's typing away, we're going to go to Thailand. I am not going to try to pronounce this. Because when I heard how it was pronounced, it doesn't look anything like it's written. Yeah. They got nothing on the French. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to Bangkok, Thailand. <laughs> um, we actually haven't talked about Thailand yet, so this was kind of a fun new one. It's like, hey, new space to go to. Uh, now, Thailand has deeply held beliefs in ghosts, a reputation that almost every vis visitor will come in contact with them when flying into the airport, unofficially known as Bangkok Airport. We have come, or we have, <clears throat> we're going with the unofficial name, as I said, because pronunciation. Um, it is actually considered to be one of the most heavily haunted spots in Thailand, which is quite a achievement for a place that started operating in 2006. So really new airport um, compared to the other ones that we've been talking to about. 
The airport lies outside the city center in a neighboring province of Samantakam, uh, a rural marshland known as Cobra Swamp. The area was drained to make way for the new airport, and what many did not know was that part of that land was also an ancient cemetery. During construction, workers reported strange incidents. These occurred, occurrences grew until someone refused to work altogether. The unrest culminated with a number of fatal accidents with people claiming to hear unearthly chanting, moaning, and wailing long after. The airport officials held a huge ceremony to appease the banished spirits when Bangkok Airport opened. The rituals involved 99 Thai Buddhist monks who prayed and chanted for nine weeks. At the conclusion of the blessings and rites, a baggage handler named Ho Ming stumbled out of the crowd saying that he was the deceased cemetery guardian and needed cleansing. Quickly, the monks blessed the man with holy water to remove the guardian spirit and return the young man to his normal self. Sales of homing were not restricted to possession. Several people claimed to have seen the blue specter roaming the airport with the aid of a walking stick and described as an old man and infirm. Homing will not leave the airport that stands over the cemetery hence that he once took care of. The ghost uh, supposedly has spoken to some shocked people, and his voice is frail and weak as he haunts the hallway. Other airport ghosts. Several people have claimed to see a ghostly lady carrying a baby. She's described as the pale woman. She's often stepping in front of vehicles and frightening the drivers. She has been blamed for a number of vehicle accidents around the airport. There have been reports of strange and unexplicable sounds of the ground, excuse me, in the grounds by both airport workers and passengers. People have spoken of eerie footsteps when they are alone, ghostly voices, shrill wails, and the haunting sounds of classical time music. Security officials at once entered a translate state while working and ordered that another shrine be erected at the airport. Many people believe the man had been possessed by the spirit when he was making his demand. Poltergeists are often thought to be a plague that is a part of the airport as well and has been blamed for a number of unfortunate events at the airport. These include, as I said before, car crashes, equipment failure, and incidents involving baggage trucks. One of the biggest events to have been blamed on the ghost involved a plane. The aircraft lost control and skidded off the runway during landing in 2013. Despite people blaming paranormal causes for the crash, a benevolent ghost air stewardess is said to have helped with the rescue operation. In October of 2018, an inbound plane lost control and slid off the runway, also blamed on ghosts. Most disturbingly, the airport has seen an abnormally high um, number of suicides, with people leaping from the higher terminal areas. A glass barrier eventually was erected to try to prevent this from happening. It's common. It's a common thought that suicides are the work of the um, excuse me, of the uh, angry spirit. And um, some people take it a step further, saying that it is a tortured soul of the victims' remains that are uh, at the airport that are causing these terrors to others. The activity is enough to result in a regularly scheduled prayer session at the airport shrine to try and keep the spirits happy and calm. Group sessions are led by various airlines and airport authorities. People also frequently leave offerings at the shrine. Danny thinks that the uh, all the uh, the crashes on the outskirts ones. I think it's a good sound theory. Yeah. Remember the I, I remember the movie. There's they're playing with the, the the wires of the traffic signal and the horns. They crash. Yep. 
for months. Yep. So, yeah. Somebody fed them after midnight, which is in your home. My money's at your home. And the guy tastes more wet. Yeah. Both, both, both known us. Yeah. Donnie says that we have to finish the show by feeding each other a chocolate-covered strawberry. Okay. Darn. But we are not done yet. So when we get there, we will do so. But we're not there yet. <clears throat> so uh, we do have, I think, one more town. One more story. Yeah. No, two more stories. My bad. Because I didn't edit. I didn't show the manuscript. Yeah. Anyways, so uh, we are going to go back to June 13th of 1993. Donald Deke Slayton, one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts and a true test pioneer of the right stuff fame, passed away at his home in Houston, Texas. Slayton, who succumbs to a brain tumor, died at 3.22 a.m. with his wife Bobby and daughter Stacy at his bedside. Although one of the select group picked to be the, <clears throat> excuse me, picked to be the USA's first astronaut, Slayton was at first prevented from going into space by a heart problem. And it was not until he was cleared for flight in the 1970s that he finally made it into orbit as, as the docking module pilot of the 1975 Apollo Soyuz project. Having celebrated his 51st birthday four months before the docking mission with the Soviet cosmonauts, he was then the oldest man to fly in space. <clears throat> Back on Earth, Slayton later led the shuttle uh, approach and landing test program before retiring from NASA in 1982. But retirement could not keep this astronaut, second World War bomber pilot, and test pilot out of the air for long. And he developed an enthusiasm for the adrenaline-charged world of Formula One air racing. His chosen mount was a bright red Art Williams-built monoplane, the Stinger, with the number 21 on the fuselage in black. Formerly flown to 18 U.S. racing victories, including two national championships by ace racer John Paul Jones, the Stinger was finally donated in the early 1990s by Slayton to an air racing museum in Nevada, never to fly again. Or was it? At the center of this tale is Orange County, California's John Wayne Airport. The airport is tightly ringed by urban development and is one of the most noise-sensitive airports anywhere in the world. Surrounded by a battery of 10 noise monitoring stations, the airport's noise abatement office maintains a careful curfew that prevents any airliners from taking off before 7 a.m. on Mondays through Saturdays and 8 a.m. on Sundays. These same hours also mark the noise limitations for business and general aviation aircraft, which can operate for periods into the night as long as certain noise levels are not exceeded. It's 7.57 a.m. on June 13, 1993. While the, uh, while the curfew was still in place and commercial airlines were waiting impatiently for takeoff clearance, a small red racing aircraft took off performed various flight maneuvers, and immediately triggered the sensitive noise monitoring systems into action. Noise monitoring stations 1 and 2 both spiked with decibel readings in excess of the specified limits. The aircraft was then seen to continue in a slow climb to the west and eventually out of sight over the nearby Pacific Ocean. It is unclear whether air traffic control tried to make voice contact with the mystery aircraft, but what is known is that several witnesses reported noisy, high-speed fixed-propeller aircraft to the airport's noise abatement office. 
All reports included a clearly visible 21 identifier with the unusual lines of the F-1 racer on the aircraft. It didn't take long for the FAA to figure out who the aircraft belonged to. A notice of violation of the airport's general aviation noise ordinances was sent by certified mail on June 28, 1993, to the Houston address of the aircraft's registered owner, Donald Slayton. Here it was picked up by Slayton's astonished widow who read, as an initial violation, this letter is intended as a warning to seek your voluntary compliance with the noise ordinance. Absent any additional violation, no further referral of this matter will be made. Bobby Slayton told the FAA that not only had her husband died about five and a half hours before the alleged incident, but that the aircraft in question was at the time stored in a museum several hundred miles away. Donald, or, excuse me, <clears throat> Donald. Don't worry about that. Try again. Edward Maloney. Let's go with that who received the aircraft engineer's museum collection from Slayton all those years ago, says, we've never flown it at all since he gave it to us. He was the last one ever to fly it. Although Maloney believes the ghost flight incident is someone having pipe dreams, there is more than just circumstantial evidence for this haunting occurrence. Kay Bender, executive director of the Deke Slayton Memorial Space and Bicycle Museum in Sparta, Wisconsin, close to the farm where Slayton was born in 1924, possesses a copy of the violation notice and says we have never questioned its authenticity. Although a few inquiries about the incident crop up from time to time, Bender says most visitors are interested in the story about Slayton's proven lifetime achievements in space and in the air, which kind of leads it at that. Beyond that, John Wayne Airport's noise abatement office changed its record-keeping process in the late 1990s and inquiries to the control tower revealed that in common with most FAA sites, the strips recording movements from and to the airport are stored for only six months. So like, many, um, like, so, like so many other apparent sightings and unusual events, Slayton's reported final flight remains a tantalizing enigma. That was a good story. I like that one. Yeah. Because it's just fun. You had to get one last flight. Yep. Why not? Yeah. The man lived, the man lived his life with his feet off the ground. Yeah. yeah why not? <laughs> All right. So we're going to go back over to the UK. Uh, and at the UK's Crossford Aerospace Museum resides an Avro Lincoln bomber. While the aircraft is unre or excuse me, is remarkable in its own right, the museum found itself in trouble with dwindling attendance numbers in the 1970s. So the horror of the museum staff, they were informed that their jewel of an aircraft was to be transferred to another museum in Manchester. In an attempt to prevent the transfer, they invented a ghost of Pete the poltergeist. They had no idea that what would come next. Tales started to roll in about apparitions around the aircraft, and a paranormal investigation was scheduled. The investigation entailed a reporter from the BBC and a paranormal investigator to hold an overnight visual in the aircraft. Despite the fact that Pizza Poltergeist was intended to be a work of fiction, some unusual audio evidence was captured during the investigation. When this audio evidence was played back to ex-Lincoln flight crews, they identified them as what you would expect to hear while going through pre-flight checks or during the flight. The unexpected validation of the paranormal activity was a shock to everything, and people did, in fact, start to come out to see the haunted aircraft. 
1981, the work of fiction turned verifiable. Fontina paid off. The treasure aircraft would stay at Cosford. Short little little story to wrap things up. The the fictional haunting turned that real. Turned to be real after all. So that is our final tale for this evening. And of course, everybody commented and gave us uh, lots of ideas to uh, things to look up. Keep searching. Because as I said, I've got a whole other file of just haunted transportation. So yeah. So uh, if anybody knows what haunted buses, please let me know. I've only found one so far. Haunted buses. Only found one. But. Yeah, so and not, not school children bus pushing them back off the uh, railroad tracks because we did that one already. Mm-hmm. I need other haunted buses. But let's see. So we had a question. Time to rummage around the cabinets for fruit and chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we got a question about Richmond International Airport, which would not at all surprise me. Yeah, um, said it's on a battlefield. Atlanta Hartford, gosh, literally the world's busiest airport. Probably have something going on there, but just have to dig a little deeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, then question aircraft carriers. We definitely. Yeah, definitely. We weren't going to talk about those tonight because we will talk about them. I'll see the, the Hornet mm-hmm. is most definitely right up there at the top. Yeah, and we've talked about that one before. Yeah, we did talk about um, the Hornet on one of our last shows. On our ships, yeah. And the, the Seattown? I thought so. Yeah, the yeah. Well, aircraft carrier down in Charleston? Yeah. Yeah, yeah the so, one in Charleston. Uh, that was uh, Bulldog Tours offers tours of. Yorktown. So, yeah, definitely uh, you got the Yorktown down there, uh, which we which we did not talk about on Haunted Charleston. No, well, so, we didn't go visit it either. Which this is true. Yeah. Um, what's the one that's up on the in New York City? I can't remember. Mm. That cage jumped off the National Treasure. <gasps> I can picture it, but I can still not think of it. I'll have to dig into it. Anyway. Oh, no, more research. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Strawberries. Oh, uh, we've been told to feed. Yes. Well, not reminded, but we would. If I can get it. So good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're awesome, Johnny. And Alex, to help you out, literally. One cup of dark chocolate chip, uh, two teaspoons of Crisco melted in the microwave, and uh, probably like 40, maybe 50 seconds melted in the microwave, and then dip your strawberries and then stick them in the fridge to solidify. That's all it is. It's really easy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the strawberries themselves, go ahead, give them a wash, dry, mm-hmm. dry them off thoroughly. Yep. And, and chill them first. Chill them first. It'll help the, uh, the chocolate bond to the strawberries. So, important steps. But very, very, very easy. easy to do. Very easy. Of course, you could go ahead and just skip all those steps and just go ahead with, um, like, um, dried fruit to begin with. Yeah, because I do make the same thing with um, dried mangoes. Yeah. Did you make them? Or Recently, them? no. I, I made them last summer. Oh, you did make them. I'm sorry. Yeah, they were very good. Yeah. Yeah. Dried, dried mangoes, go ahead and get them and dip them in chocolate. Dark chocolate. Oh. Must be dark chocolate. So good. So good. So, uh, but yes, thank you all so much for tuning in tonight. I love it. Lots of good questions tonight. Yes. This is fantastic. Yes. We love doing this. Yes. Yes. Uh, so next week, we're going to do Haunted Finger Lakes. Two weeks. Two weeks, sorry. Two weeks. Next show. <laughs> yeah. 
So, yeah, heading back up to New York. Um, that's that's, uh, that's our, our little vacation land up there, up yeah. on New York Way. So we, and the Finger Lakes is actually an area I've never explored. I haven't been in detail now. Yeah. I mean, I've driven through there plenty of times, but, you know, it's famed with wineries and, you know, quaint little bed and breakfast and stuff like that. And by the time I was old enough to enjoy all of that, I more or less moved away from Rochester. Yeah. I was in college, went to college for all those years way up in the North Country. All those years, five years. Yeah. Up in the North Country, graduated, and then boom, Richmond. Yeah. <laughs> Here we are. Um, but yeah, so we're going to take you up there and explore that region. Um, found a lot of places now that I want to go stay at. So, <laughs> my glass is empty. I can't do cheers anymore. Cheers with mine. Oh. I can share with you. Cheers. Uh, and then after that, uh, we are going to do haunted campgrounds because it's camping season. Yes. I didn't know that. Uh, Chris, uh, Chrissy's family's up that way. So, well, we'll be sharing, sure. some, be sharing some stories about that up that way in a couple weeks. Uh, so, yeah. yeah sort of I just got back from Hinsdale House. Yes, yeah. I was uh, yeah, chatting with uh, Donnie earlier about that. Yeah, enjoyed uh, seeing all the posts that they did mm -hmm. while they were up that way. Yeah, we'll have to get together with you to see what you got for evidence because I want to do Hinsdale House on one of these. Yeah, um, but yeah, if you if you're interested in what I was talking about with Donnie there, uh, Spirit Guides, mm -hmm. um, you can go ahead. You can follow them on Facebook. And what are the kitty cats? Are um, they completely bad? Yes, they did. They need to say goodnight. They're being antisocial today. Please, one of you. Uh oh, we'll be grabbing. I got Lulu. Lulu's coming. <laughs> Lulu's not happy about coming. She is... Lulu's a ball. Yep. Hello, baby. So here's the Lulu. Yep. Una had her for a few minutes earlier, and she's completely gone. I don't know where she went, but here's Lulu. This is like, what did you do? Lulu started the show. Lulu's closing the show. So, uh, but yeah, I think it's warm. Since it's getting warmer now, they're, they're not, not too keen on getting quite as cuddly as they... So, Lulu's going to go meet her grandparents at the end of the month. Yep. She has not met them yet. Nope. They are, they are looking forward to it. I don't think Lulu has any idea what's in store for her. I think they're more excited about seeing the girls. Than but we love them. We do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We love our kids. <laughs> so, with that, everybody. Yep. We'll see you in two weeks, and we'll talk about how many fingerless. Yep. And in the meantime, as always, have any questions for us or you find a cool story, let me know. Yes, yes. We're, we're always uh, always happy to uh, take suggestions for research. Um, you know, a couple of our best shows were, uh, were about that um, earlier, back in January. Yep. The two shows we did in January, the one about uh, the Maryland State Parks, particularly Point Lookout, that was Glenn's suggestion. Had a lot of fun with that. And then uh, we did Werewolves. Which was a lot of Werewolves. Fun. Werewolves was also a lot of fun. So, yeah, we're always... Um, open to take suggestions. Our next two shows might be uh, kind of planned out right now, but beyond that, we are always uh, willing to listen. Yep. So with that, we'll go ahead. We'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Thanks again for watching, and uh, we'll see you later. Sure. Keep, our, keep things spooky, everybody. <laughs>